Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 16. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Let's praise God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that prevails. Uh, Lord, these are not just words. These are reality. Uh, So many of our words uh, lead people astray, and yet we pray, Lord, that your words would guide us into truth, that we would not fight against your word, but that we would accept it and have it conform our thinking to the thinking of Christ. We ask you now, Lord, to be with us, and I pray that you would uh, guide me as I bring up a topic that is just so uh, underrepresented, perhaps, in the studies of the church. And so I pray, Lord, that you would awaken us uh, to this glorious truth. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message continues on from last week. And last week when I ended, I really did think that today's topic would be different. Uh, We'll get there. I think we'll get there next week. But uh, I wanted to first recap a little bit from last week for anybody who might have been absent. Uh, Last week we talked about the attributes of God. And we used Psalm 139 as uh, typical of presenting the three omnis, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. Yet we used also the fourth question of the catechism, what is God, and talked about how all of these are his attributes, and even that question and answer is not complete. And yet, we wanted to bring this up because God is immaterial, and that was the name of the message. And so it was used to apply to both unbelief and belief. Uh, To the unbeliever, God is immaterial. He is unimportant. He is meaningless. Whereas to the believer, God is immaterial means that he is incorporeal. He has no body. So now, we on this earth who are in our bodies, who have spirits, but they're invisible to us. Many people deny we have our spirits. As a matter of fact, I was watching a video a few days ago, and a man, a scientist, had this video, and he was commenting on how chimpanzees and man have 99% of the same DNA. Therefore, man is really only worthy of 1% more respect or nobility in terms of creation. Because, of course, this is it. This is our material existence, and we are 1% better than that chimp. We're different. And, of course, that's silly. And it's the spirit that accounts for that silliness. So now, unbelievers often, and yet it really wasn't common uh, for centuries God was the center of our world. 
After Christ, God was the center of most civilizations that were Western in nature, that were oriented towards God, that were somewhat Christian. So even all the massive number of unbelievers that may have existed in those cultures did not fight against God as being the center of those cultures. Yet with the Renaissance came man. Man was now the measure of all things. Man was placed at the center of our world. He didn't last long. Then along came mankind. And with the 20th century, you saw man, collective, kill man, the individual, by the tens of millions, because it was deemed a better thing, a more noble end. These people all had to die for the good of mankind. That didn't last long. Now we see that next phase where the earth is what is to be preserved. It is the organism of the earth that is far more important than mere man. And we now live at a time when we're seeing that transition to where the earth is regarded as far more important than any collective of man or any individual man. So see, that was what was introduced last week. God the immaterial, who is ignored by the unbelievers on the earth, but yet our ignoring him has huge consequences because we displace him from his rightful place and we place something else there that destroys our world. So now, last week's was entitled, God is Immaterial. And this week's title is, I think, similarly provocative. It is that angels are incidental. Now, I do not mean any disrespect to angels. And I think we'll explain that as we go through the message. But two writers, as I was studying this topic, referred to angels as incidental. They take no center place in all of Scripture. You've got God, who is the main character in Scripture, and then you have man. Man is present from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Man is throughout the whole Bible. And you have angels in really a distant place in terms of people, persons. You have God a person, you have man a person, and you have angels as persons. And yet they really take a back seat to pretty much everything else in Scripture that relates to God and man. So they are incidental, but they are so amazing. And we, our destinies are really intertwined with angels all throughout time. And so that's why I wanted to focus on this, because saying that God is immaterial is not enough. We have to really address angels, too. It was difficult to choose a text, though because of them being incidental. You can't find a scripture that really encompasses all of the purpose of an angel on this earth. Why do they exist? What are they here for? There are some that allude to it, perhaps even more so than mine was, but you'll see why I chose this text at the end. Again, though, this is very topical. I'm going to be all over scripture, and so I'm actually going to get back to this Hebrew 2 passage at the very end. So now, in order of importance, though, we've got God, man, and angels. And so my original title was Men and Angels, which actually is going to be the topic of this message, and it is about how similar we are to angels, how similar angels are to us. And I'm going to cover four different aspects of this, uh, similarities and differences in respect to our creation, our fall, our present state, and the future what the hereafter holds for both men and angels. So now, first, let's get into this uh, about creation, men and angels in creation. So we know 
when men were created. We know when man was created. Right there on the sixth day, right? Right after the animals. God created the sea creatures in the morning, apparently. He created the animals maybe in midday, and then he created man. And man is not an animal. Man was created higher than the animals. So we know when men were created, day six. I would say the afternoon. But so now, what does the Bible say about angels and their creation? Or, frankly, were they created? Are angels components of our world, this that documents man, or did they pre-exist? Did they come with God in terms of this? And the reason I bring that up, and some of you might think that odd, but the reason I bring it up is I was talking to a good friend who's been a Christian all of his life and who actually is very learned, very well-read man. And yet a few weeks ago, he was a little confused, thinking, well, yeah, were the angels created or did they pre-exist? I thought, oh, wow, this is important. I mean, this is, this is to me very important. You must address this. And so that's why I thought, well, it's also good to address this because we know from Scripture that angels were created, and I want to take you there. And it is in Psalm 148. Now, there may be other uh, texts too, and believe me, I am not going to plumb the depths of all the texts that relate to angels. There are nearly 200 references to just angel, and yet angels can be, uh, other terms can be used to describe angels in Scripture. So we won't come anywhere near to plumbing the depths, but this is really just a broad brush description of men and angels in, uh, on this earth. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 6. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. I have an aside there that I won't bring up now, but if you want to ask me afterwards, I'd like to talk about it with you. Uh, and it has to do with what he says here in verse 6 about he has established them forever and ever. But it's unrelated to this, so I'm neglecting, suppressing the urge to bring it up. So now we know angels were created here. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. And he goes through this list of all these things that were created by God. Now, when were they created? And I believe we can know by when they were created, but we don't know exactly when they were created. And the reason I say by when is this. Turn to Job 38, if you would. This does not tell us exactly when, but it does say by when. In chapter 38, in verse 4, we read this, and, and Job, Job is now being, is having a talking to from God. And I think when I talked about this, I talked to you about a smoky being right there. I mean, God is really dressing Job down. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then he goes on, who determines its measurements and all these various things. But he says at verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, this is one of the terms that refers to angels in Scripture oftentimes, sons of God. Now, you can't be uh, just blanket 
though, with sons of God, because that's what people do with Genesis 6, and that is not sons of God interacting with women and having sex with them and having children with them. Uh, some of the writings as I was researching this point to that, but no, that's not sons of God. That's the sons of the godly line of Seth. So now, what we see here, though, in saying sons of God, these are the angels. These are the angels that are mentioned also in Job 1 and 2, when the sons of God came to present themselves before God. These are the angels. They are coming in their ranks to present themselves before God. And so we can see then that they were there. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, it, and he's speaking of creating the earth. When did God create the earth? On day four. So we know the angels were present at day four to watch as the earth was created. So we know now pretty much where the angels were most likely created, and that is before verse 9. And so it's most likely that he's created them with the heavens. Now, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is for the most part regarded as a summary statement. And then it goes into detail as to what all is being done, what is being created in each day. So, but if it's not, if it is actually part of the narrative, then you know that they were probably created with the heavens. In the beginning, God had created the heavens and the earth. So now you know the angels were created with the heavens. Or you know they were created sometime in verse 6, 7, and 8, where he makes the firmament, he divides the water, he calls the firmament heaven, the evening and morning, the second day. So most likely, they were created on the second day. That's what I think. But we know they were created before day four. Now, we know they were created. We know we were created. So now, what are similarities and differences in our creation, in man, fundamentally, and the angels? So now, first, I already mentioned that man is not an animal. He is above the animals. And in the same way, angels are above the animals. Obviously, they're immaterial. They'd be invisible animals, right? So now, we know that we are above the animals and the angels are above the animals. We're persons with personalities and all that that entails. We know that angels were created upright, holy, and pure, just as man was. And we know this because at the end of day six, God pronounced all that he had created very good. So by that time, Satan had not fallen, nor had man. So we know that the angels were pure at that point. We know the angels, just as man, were obliged to worship God. And I believe they had no problem worshiping God because they recognized who he was, that he was the creator, he was worthy of this. And they were given their assigned roles. The angels actually can trans, uh, uh, transmit themselves between heaven and earth, right? Jacob, in, in Genesis, you see of the, the ladder, Jacob's ladder, the angels descending. Jesus refers to the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So the angels, in accordance with their duties, have free range between heaven and earth, whereas men are pretty much restricted to the earth, although Paul most likely speaks of himself as being caught up to the third heaven in a vision. That is heaven. And yet, that is exceedingly rare. You see that so little in Scripture. And when it happens, it's typically in a vision. We doubt that they were physically caught up. They were spiritually caught up. So, see, there's this fundamental difference then between the dominions, the domains of men and angels. And angels aren't coming to earth so much to live as to minister. 
That's part of their duties. They minister to us on the earth. And that was another potential verse I was going to share, but it speaks about as the text for our topic. And that's because they are ministering spirits sent to minister to those that will inherit salvation. That's one of the angels' duties. They have several others too. They minister to God. They're in His presence, advocating, serving Him, worshiping Him. And also we know that we were made ministering spirits as well. We have bodies and spirits, and we serve God, and we are even encouraged to serve God in our spirits, right? So, see, we are to walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So, our spirit is to guide us, just as with the angels, they have spirits that guide them. Now, with these immortal spirits, there is also a common ground, and Jesus refers to it when he's answering the Sadducees when they challenge him about the woman who went through eight brothers, and they said, who will this woman be with in the hereafter? And, and Jesus said something kind of startling. He said, she will not be with anybody because in the hereafter, men are like any angels. They do not die. They do not marry. So see, we know that this is a difference, though, between men and angels here on earth, but yet it will be a similarity in heaven. Now, Let's consider the fall. Mankind fell in Genesis 3.6 when Eve was tempted to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When did the angels fall? Again, we know by when, right? Satan fell before Eve. He's the one that tempted her to also disobey. So we know this we know that he was the serpent in the garden. And sometimes, you know, for as clear as things seem in Scripture, to correlate that Satan is the serpent in the garden is not as easy as you would think. John, though, thankful for the book of Revelation, John in 12.9 says this, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So we see here that Satan, the devil, is equated with that serpent of old. So that is the clearest scriptural connection in that it was Satan that deceived Adam and Eve. Now, I think you could prove it elsewhere also, but it's much more implicit as opposed to explicit. Now, what do we know about the fall of Satan and his angels? Well, there are two verses really that relate to that. that the church has historically seen as pertaining to the fall of Satan. And the first is in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12, we read this. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This is attributed to Satan. Now, actually, Isaiah is writing with reference to the king of Babylon, but yet this little excerpt here, and actually there are a few other words here too that seem to relate to it, would seem to imply that, uh, that uh, Satan had a rather strong hold on the king of Babylon, or at least the empire of Babylon at that time, to where the two could almo almost be synonymous at this point. 
They are a power on the earth that Satan wields tremendous control over, so much that Isaiah equates the two. The next one is this, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, starting at verse 12, kind of right in the middle of it. This one is actually referring to the king of Tyre, again, talking in context of an earthly king. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now, I want to give one little aside. It won't take long. But people really do wrestle with the existence of evil in our world. How can God be exonerated of being the author of sin and the creator of evil? Because he's not. But yet, how can that be true? And let me share an illustration with you. I think it, is, it applies. It's kind of just an analogy, a metaphor. But if you were to see or have an incredibly beautiful garment or, or, or tapestry where you see this beautiful scene, if your enemy, knowing that you loved that, were to take a knife to it and cut it into pieces, what are those tears? Are they tangible? Are they substance? No. Those tears are imperfections in what was perfect. But they are not in and of themselves things, right? A tear is the absence of a thing, the absence of perfection. So, see, I think that's the best illustration I could give you for understanding why evil exists and how it came to be about. God can arrange for this to happen as he did through Satan, and yet he did not author it. He did not create this imperfection in this tapestry. He allowed another, an enemy, to create it. So, just a brief aside. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what we know about this fall. We know Satan hadn't fallen by the end of day six because everything was declared very good. We know he was, if we take uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel as referring to Satan, we know he was an anointed cherub in the garden. Now, I, I'm trying to minimize conjecture, but... One thing I think I feel pretty strongly about is that Satan resented his role on earth as being this protector of the garden. He was above all that. He was far more important and far more special than these humans. And so his pride and his wanting to vaunt himself and declare himself to be like God was something that was probably in part fueled by this task of having to guard these humans in this garden. I, we don't know that for sure, but yet it seems to, to be consistent with his character, his fallen character. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. We see that the created world is perfect at the end of Genesis 2 still, and yet now the serpent. So see, somewhere between those two times, Satan fell. 
and we then witness the fall of Adam and Eve. We don't even know how much time has passed. It could have been days, weeks, who knows? We really don't know. But time passed, sometime at least, and Satan had already fallen, and now he's deceiving Eve. What I wonder is, is this Satan's first sin as well? Because this would then be him rebelling against God without having done it before he's fooled Eve. And so in conjunction with him slandering God, as he did with Eve, and casting her and her husband into a sinful uh, relationship with God through deception, maybe that's it. Maybe it occurred earlier, I don't know, but we don't see. Again, angels are incidental. Even Satan is incidental in Scripture. He's not really given a prominent place. So now, Satan and his angels were cast out, and we see that in Revelation 12. I, I referenced a little bit of it earlier, but let me read the whole thing because it's, it's pretty moving. Revelation 12, starting at verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then we go on. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in the heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So we see here that when Christ ascends after his victory into the heavenlies, Satan is cast out. He's now a defeated enemy. Now, premillennialists view this differently. They still view this as future, but I, I don't know of postmillennialists that, that would regard this as a future thing. Satan has been cast out of heaven from the postmillennialist understanding of time and of the future events. But now Jesus also, one thing that seems to give credibility to the fact that, that uh, Satan was in the process of falling from heaven as he was being attacked by Jesus and the church here on earth is in Luke 10, 17 and 18, where the 70 have returned and they, account, they recount to Christ this fabulous victory that they saw. And then Jesus says this in verse 17, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so it would seem that this is the attack that has begun to dislodge Satan from heaven. Now, what are the similarities and difference in the fall of men and angels? So first, we know that men and angels were able to choose to disobey, right? Because Satan fell after all. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And so there was this act of volition that they both acted upon to regard God as their enemy. I have no uh, doubt that they had no idea what the true consequences of their rebellion would result in. Neither one of them. They were newly created. They were fairly young here. They were young and inexperienced and, and innocent, and yet they both fell. 
neither seemed to realize the eternal consequences of their disobedience. Now, Satan then led his followers, because when you see Satan, often you see, and his angels. So, he led followers into a rebellion against God. He was an angel of authority in this time. And he chose to rebel, and many chose to follow him. And when you think about it, it was only about 6,000 years ago. So, see, these angels were created immortal. We all die. We are mortal. Very few of us last very long. Even the patriarchs of old never made it over 1,000 years. Methuselah was 969. Yet the angels, every angel has existed from that moment of creation. So they're all old, and they all grow in wisdom. So they are getting smarter and smarter and smarter and craftier and craftier and craftier. See, there is no end to this, really, except we have God on our side, who, of course, is even outside of creation. And so he has all of this knowledge. So from very early on, Satan must have realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And yet, he is locked into this war that he started with God. And God is going to see that it is finished on his timeline. They each chose to worship a creature. Satan worshiping himself, mankind worshiping themselves. They cut themselves off from God. We want to worship ourselves. So see, Adam and Eve's posterity were tainted, but with, with the devil, he was tainted in his own act. All of the other angels were tainted in their own act because they're all created independently. We are all through Adam and Eve. Every one of us here are related to Adam. But yet the angels are all created independent. Stamping them out. They are individuals. It's not like you're going to see a a million of them look alike or something like that. They're individuals, and I think we see enough individuality in Scripture to infer that, that that is true of all the angels. But yet, they're all unique, and they're all independent. They are each individuals. But yet with us, we inherit this sin, this fall. So, man made the biggest error in human history in believing the slander of Satan. And so, the angels rejected eventually from heaven, not immediately, but at least some may have been, because they're in Jude and in Peter, it speaks of those angels that uh, did not retain their initial abode and were bound by uh, God and sentenced into the deep pit. So it would seem that some of those perhaps are there now. I don't know. I, I didn't have time to really study this entirely thoroughly. But yet, they, that is where they all will be spending eternity The angels have these eternal states, just as we do. They were created in this probationary period where some of them were allowed to fall. But those that did not fall then were obviously then in the future protected from falling because God is not uh, seeing any further uh, falling away of the good angels. So there are these bad angels that were identified very early on, and there are these good angels. Men are kind of different. We're all bad, every one of us, and yet God redeems us individually and covenantally from this fallen earth. So though there is similarity in the fall, there's this fundamental difference too. Now, what about this present age? Well, we know men are always seen. We are two parts. We have a body and a spirit, but yet we're visible. That's what makes us human 
we have both. And yet the angels often can be seen as men on the earth. Uh, men, uh, to every example, except there's one in Nehemiah where it's, it's uh, supposed that these two women that are referred to could have been angels, but they're not clearly stated to be angels, and also it appears to be in a vision anyway, so it's not even like it's real. But in all other examples, the angels are always men, and they always appear to be like men in the prime of their life. They're not old men, they're not young men, they're, they're, they're men in the prime of their life. And so that would seem to indicate that that is how they were created by God, to be eternal and remain in that state. They don't age, they don't, they don't have to. So we are separated into godly and ungodly divisions, and you have that in Ephesians 6, where you have the ungodly principalities and powers and authorities. So there appears to be this structure of the evil angels anyway, and yet you see to some degree that being true in the heavenly realm as well. And so you must infer that because God, our God is a God of order and there would be some hierarchy in terms of how he has all the angels structured. And just as we are, we are structured, albeit poorly perhaps, you know, by, by other comparisons, but yet we structure ourselves too. We are filled, the earth is filled with hierarchies of how we uh, uh, relate to one another. And, and God has designed some of it with the family and with the government, and yet we also voluntarily arrange ourselves in various hierarchies. So this is just seems to be a natural way in which both angels and men uh, interact. We engage in warfare. Men here on the earth, both physical warfare as well as uh, angelic warfare, spiritual warfare, and yet the angels are engaged too, and I don't need to give you examples of that. You're aware of them. And we and they learn more about God's plan of redemption. Ephesians 3.10 speaks of that. The angels are curious as to what's going on. And if you think about it, Satan didn't know what was coming. That's why I really appreciate C.S. Lewis's story in the Chronicle of Narnia, where there is this deeper magic that C.S. Lewis refers to that Aslan understood that the, that, that witch did not. See, that's the corollary of God and, and Satan. And the woman did not realize that there was this deeper way that Aslan would come back to life. She thought she was being victorious in opposing Aslan. And in the same way, Satan no doubt thought he was being victorious in opposing God, but yet it made God all the more powerful and all the more in fulfilling his promises in Scripture, his prophecies. But the angels aren't omniscient. They don't know everything. They've been around a long time, though, so they know a lot. They probably know this far better than we do. That's why it's so easy for them to deceive us and to fight against us with this. But yet, this is your weapon. They're just using it to turn it against you. So you must learn the mastery of this weapon. With this weapon, you defeat them. They might take it and try to, to use it against you, but you, if you master it, you'll defeat them. So now, we uh, know that they have personalities. They have an intellect. They have a will. They have knowledge. They are curious. They have emotions. All of these things are true of angels and men. Now, differences between angels and men in this present age. Like we said, men are visible. Angels are normally invisible. The reason I brought it up earlier is that when we see them, and thus Paul said, you know, you may be entertaining angels unawares, is that when we see them, they are like us. They look like us. But that is some... Uh, what is it, a, a theophany, a, an angelophany. You know, it's appearance of an angel in human form. Now, men switch sides. 
men are taken from Satan's kingdom and translated into God's kingdom. Men appear to be translated from God's kingdom into the enemy's kingdom. That is only appearance, though, because we know we continue to sin, and yet we have Christ that, that, that uh, cleanses us of sin and draws us back closer to himself. So you can't gauge whether a person is a Christian just by their sin, because we continue to sin and yet continue to get forgiveness. And yet also Jesus also told the story of the sower and the seeds and where they fall. They spring up in the cracks. They spring up in the thistles. They spring up on hard ground. And so, see, these die fast, but they give the appearance of life. They give the appearance of someone having been harvested from Satan's kingdom into the heavenly, but they weren't. So, see, it only goes one way with us, with mankind. God is harvesting us from the enemy's hands into his own. See, the angels, for them, it's all over. There is no changing of sides. Long, long ago, they chose who they would have as their leader. And Satan is regarded as the god of this world. That's what, that's what uh, Jesus himself referred to him as, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So all of his angels must be loyal to him. I don't know what kind of power Satan has over his angels, but apparently he has a lot. So he does wield his authority over them. So now Satan's uh, angels can only appear to be good angels, and that again we're told, that he can pretend to be an angel of light. Satan himself and therefore all of his followers. Intentionally deceptive, intentionally trying to lead us astray. We know that angels can violate our physical laws. That's certainly a difference. Very few people can do that. And if people can do it, they're probably only doing it through demonic influence. So in other words, it's a demon that's doing it. It's not that person. For instance, uh, when Peter was in prison and the angel showed up, the chains just fell from Peter's hands. The angel didn't have to go find a, a saw blade like we would, wouldn't have to go find the key off the prison guard like we would. No, they just fall off. So they can violate the principles of this world at their whim. Now, obviously, that's also under God's control because you would think then that demons would just be running amok. They can only do what God allows them to do. So demons, though, can indwell animals and people. There is that man that said when he was cast out legion and then he went into the swine, and then the swine had the good sense to run off the cliff. So see, we can be inhabited by these demonic influences and many were in Christ's day, many were. And it would seem to be a special time of attack of Satan, trying to uh, slow down or defeat Christ during that time. And we know that angels are more powerful than humans. Uh, you might think that goes without saying. And yet, often in the Old Testament especially, uh, when you see the angel of God, that is a Christophany. That is Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. And so when you see some of the most remarkable miracles of angelic interference, involvement in the world, it appears to be Jesus that's doing the most of it. Like when uh, there are 185,000 Assyrians killed, that appeared to be the angel of the Lord, that appeared to be Jesus. Now, who knows if he did it with other angels, but they refer to only the one. But there are enough examples, though, like the one I just gave you, where this was a, an angel, not Jesus, who freed Peter from his bonds. And then you have the Lord Jesus being revealed with his mighty angels. So they're called mighty. In Genesis 19.11, you have the two angels that are at Lot's house, who are not Jesus, because Jesus was with them when they were talking with Abraham. 
That was the Christophany that was there. But now you have the two angels that were with Jesus now carrying out this act, and they strike the man that are pounding on Lot's doors with blindness. So again, they have control over this world uh, through God's permission. Acts 12.23, when Herod is being lauded for being a god and not a man, and he is appreciating this, basking in this praise, in this worship, it is an angel that strikes him, and he immediately dies of these worms and this infection. It's gross. So now there are similarities and differences of men and angels at creation, at the fall, in the present time, and in the future. Similarities of men and angels in the future, I already alluded to the one, uh, Luke 20, with the story of the woman and the, the many brothers that were her husband. And so Jesus said, in the future, in the hereafter, in the age that is to come, men will be like the angels in that they will not die and they will not marry. So see, that's, those are big. Those are similarities that we will have to the angels in heaven that make it very different from our experience here on the earth. We know that we are immortal because Revelation 20, Revelation 21 both speak of it. The angels are immortal and our spirits are immortal. It is only our spirits, though. These bodies were condemned to destruction. In Genesis, God, in the pronouncement upon Adam for his sin, said, to dust you shall return. And he meant this body. Ecclesiastes 12 refers to, 12.7 refers to our bodies being left here and our spirit going back to God, whom, whom had given it. So we know our spirits are immortal, just as the angels' spirits are immortal. And they will spend an eternity with God in heaven or an eternity in that pit of fire, that lake of fire. Now, we will live with God in the new heaven, and Revelation 20 and 21 are just beautiful. I mean, they're probably some of my favorite chapters in all the Bible because you see this heavenly Jerusalem being lowered to the earth. Both angels and men will worship and serve God in heaven, and I don't think anybody knows this. Let me test you. Did you know... Now, you might infer it uh, just because angels can uh, be perceived as men on the earth. You would think that this is true, but we do have a biblical reference for it. In Revelation twenty-one seventeen. it says, Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Isn't that interesting? That's a funny little sentence. The measure of a man, that is, of an angel... So see, we're told that men and angels are roughly the same size in heaven and hereafter because their, their measurements can be confused with one another, it would seem. So, so that's another similarity. Now the differences, and the differences are huge. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, verses 1 through 3. Right in the middle of this epistle that uh, Paul has written to the Corinthians, trying to deal with a hundred problems in this church that is having such a difficult time getting out of its sinful lifestyle. He says this, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? 
Now, I don't know about you, but I do not feel adequate to judge angels. This is remarkable. Now, some say this is most likely only the fallen angels, but I don't see that qualification there. It appears to me that God has raised us up for a purpose in heaven that is yet to be revealed, but yet involves this truth that we are elevated in a position of authority to judge angels. It's just remarkable. Now, Revelation 19.7 says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. This is a huge difference between men and angels in heaven. We are the bride of Christ. We, humanity, the redeemed, the church of God, is the bride. The angels are guests at the wedding. We are in the wedding. The bride is the person that is most highly esteemed and regarded at a wedding, even outshines the groom, really. And so this just shows you how God has placed the church in this special position of of beauty and, and honor. And yet, we have so many now that pay little attention to the church. They treat it with contempt. The church is worth nothing but contempt. Yet, as Scott says, you better watch because you're dissing Jesus' wife. You talk down on the church. And then we come to our text, Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So see, this is Jesus talking about taking on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subjected to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So see, this verse that I chose to read at the beginning points out a huge difference in the regard that God has for man versus angel. We don't know why. In the same way we don't know why there are elect and non-elect humans. We don't know why God has given this position of prominence to humans, but he has. It's a, it's a remarkable and beautiful thing. In uh, 21, verse 3, Revelation 21, verse 3, and I want to read two verses here. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And I'll move down to verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So see, there is this angelic pride in showing this John, the bride of Christ. So see, the angels aren't dissatisfied with their position, not the good ones. The, the bad ones, yes, of course. They're going to be dissatisfied with their position in the hereafter. Now, Simon Kistemaker, in a comment on this text that I just read, said this concerning the wedding of the Lamb. He said that this, it is patterned after a Hebrew wedding ceremony. He said, in Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. So, in other words, this is an arranged marriage. 
Throughout the entire Old Testament era, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, and the betrothal took place. He founded the church. The price, the dowry, was paid on Calvary. And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns, and it has come, the wedding of the Lamb. The church on earth yearns for this moment. So does the church in heaven. So, the angels are remarkable. And yes, they are incidental to Scripture, but that is in no way to slight them. They have a very precious role in God's economy, both here on the earth and in heaven. They minister to us. They minister to God. They're always before God's face. And yet, next week, we'll look at why humans being made in the image of God are of so much more esteem in God's eyes. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that you have made us to see uh, what it is to be your bride, to be humans, but I can't say mere humans, because you have uh, instilled honor and dignity and nobility by becoming human yourself. So, Father, we thank you for all that you have done, and we pray that we would not be weary in well-doing, that we would not be a bad bride, but that we would be a faithful and patient bride while waiting for the consummation of the wedding. We thank you now, Father, for your many gifts to us, and we pray that we would worship you fully with all that you've given, that we would not turn any of it to idolatry by serving ourselves. We ask you, Lord, to uh, praise and uh, all honor and glory be given to Christ, our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.